Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Ruel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners from Los Angeles to Long Island, make this, your second half of life even better than the first. Over the last half century, we've witnessed a blizzard of technological advances that have had a profound impact on our daily lives. But if we take the time to reflect for a moment and look around at the commonplace devices we take for granted, we would discover that many of them actually had their origin during an era we don't normally associate with innovation, the Middle Ages. In today's episode, author and producer John W. Farrell takes us through a fascinating series of stories in his book, The Clock and the Camshaft, that describe how dozens of inventions that are part of virtually every aspect of contemporary technology had their roots in medieval times between the 11th and 14th centuries. John takes us behind the invention of key, the key mechanism in the mechanical clock, perhaps as a means of automating the ringing of church bells. He'll explain how cylindrical axles, known as camshafts, originated in windmills centuries before they evolved into a key component of the internal combustion engine. We'll take a walk through architectural innovations like flying buttresses, which allowed the design of grand cathedrals. Then there were social innovations, such as universities, ignited by the popes as a way to protect the church against European monarchs. And the mariner's astrolabe and the compass, tools that helped spur the expansion of European trade and enable navigators like Columbus to take real chances outside the comfortable commerce between Mediterranean port cities. Perhaps most remarkable in John's themes throughout his stories is the refreshing discovery that while many of the world's most important inventions were due to the ingenuity of particular individuals, many others came out of the work of everyday people whose names may be unknown today, but whose legacy lay the foundation of the modern world. So now, John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's delight, delighted to be here. Yeah. Now, before we uh, dive into a little bit of your background and the book, John, I just wanted to mention there is a real pleasure for me to have you on the show. You know, I, I have a wide range of topics, many of them pragmatic and covering health or finances or aging in place or long-term planning. And so it's, it's great to have, you know, a 45 moment of reflection. Oh, thank you so much. Where, yeah, where we just sort of take, wait a minute, let's just take a step back and look around at life where we are right now and what's going on around us. And this was a, a great opportunity for me to do that. So again, welcome to the show. And um, uh, so before we actually talked about the book, let, let me uh, ask you about yourself a little bit about, you know, your journey, because you know, I find many of my guests, in addition to having great, you know, things to say about some various subjects, have a very interesting life themselves in terms of their evolution. So you 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 basically began as a science writer, right? Yes, or actually, I've, I was interested in creative writing um, since I was a kid. Um, mm -hmm. Middle school, high school, I edited the high school literary magazine, that kind of thing. And then, as an undergrad, um, I had to take you know there was a science requirement, and um, I picked a year long survey survey course uh, in the history of astronomy. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I just thought it was astronomy, but I didn't realize the professor was also a professor of the history of astronomy. And I just fell in love with the topic. And um, 
I and actually considered whether I should major in history of science, um, but I was so far behind in calculus with everybody else. I thought <laughs> by the time I catch up, it'll be time to graduate. So <laughs> no, I, I stuck with uh, English and American literature, but I started reading um, history of science. And then um, uh, as I, my first writing job was actually um, for union newspapers, government employee union newspapers, which was uh, quite a way to kind of break into journalism. Um, and then the history of science aspect was kind of a serendipity. Um, what happened was uh, there was a, a kind of a crackpot article in um, National Review written by a guy who, who claimed that Einstein was probably wrong and a friend of mine can show you why. And uh-huh. I was like so outraged that they just, they published that without any kind of review. I wrote this long, angry letter to the editor and they published <laughs> it. So, um, so from there in, I started getting requests to do book reviews and stuff like that. But right. um, so, uh, I mean, I was already interested in the topic, but then when I realized, hey, you could actually maybe make a living doing this, <laughs> it sort of um, took off from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It is a, you know, it's, it's a good niche. It's an, it's an important niche. I think today more than ever, you know, good science writing is important. You know, there's, there's a, uh, I remember um, several years ago, one of my mentors, a man named William Zinzer, who wrote this book called on writing. Well, it's excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he had a chapter on science writing and good, clear science writing is really, you know, a craft you know, and it's uh, making it accessible, making it clear. Um, I, I, I did a couple of, uh, I, I guess one of our assignments was, you know, explain how that something works. And, uh, you know, it was like, that's harder than you think <laughs> to, yes. to explain clearly how something <laughs> works, whatever it is. Um, and I think that uh, in general, I think a good, clear science communication for the public is important. I, I guess um, I did some teaching at the, um, the School of Journalism and Communication at, at uh, Stony Brook um, uh, a couple of years ago. And, and of course, now they have the Alan Alda, you know, um, program for, I guess, Center for Communicating Science. Right. So I think what we realize today in this sort of age, it's important to have people who really can do this well. And you're one of them. So glad to have you on the show. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, sure. And sure. I actually think, um, too, that um, the, the history of science component, I found um, as I was learning the science that if I understood why things were discovered from an historical perspective, that made it easier to understand the science when, you know, you had to learn all the, you know, the problem sets, <laughs> right, right. as opposed to just the abstract, you know, giving you say Einstein or, or Darwin or whatever for in a textbook, because you have to learn it. Uh, and I found that actually learning how it evolved historically uh, made the ideas even clearer. And, right. uh, and that also kind of helped, yeah. And, and does help, I think, with the writing of it. Right, right. So did, did you, in the course of research, did you have sort of an, like an aha moment of like when you were looking at these various inventions, like, wait a minute, these were all happened, you know, in Middle Ages. You know, isn't that this, that interesting that that's, you know, sort of a beyond the, the stereotype? Yes. Yeah. In fact, I think my, my first book was um, – um, about the Catholic priest who came up with the first version of the Big Bang Theory. Um, uh-huh. and the book was The Day Without Yesterday. And um, Father Lemaitre, who was a Belgian uh, Catholic priest, uh, a World War I veteran, and um, 
I got the opportunity to write about him uh, basically because I realized no one else had written about him uh, mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. And uh, he was one of those figures you'd kind of see in the background if you write a, if you you know read a general history of um, cosmology or the Big Bang or Einstein or relativity. Lemaitre, he'd always be in there as a footnote or something or the guy who came up with what they called the cosmic egg hypothesis. But mm-hmm. uh, as I was doing a few different um, articles uh, on Einstein, uh, he kept showing up in some of the research articles. And I thought mm. this guy was probably a lot more cool than we realized. And right. um, uh, an editor basically um, gave me an opportunity. Um, <laughs> what happened was I was pitching an editor in New York. Would you like to read my fiction? And huh. uh, he was like, eh, you know, fiction's really hard to sell, uh, but I like these articles you've already written. Would you like, you know, do you have any idea for nonfiction books? So I just popped back by email. Well, what about a book about this Catholic priest? And he's like, that's a great idea. You know, huh. that's literally how it happened. Um, but as I was researching that book, um, I, I had to go further and further back in time. Uh, I mean, there's the general kind of scientific revolution stuff leading up to uh, Einstein. Um, and as I was researching that, I came across more and more things that just went further and further back, like into the Middle Ages. And I just thought, Oh, you know, I, those were far older than I thought. I you know I thought they were more kind of recent inventions. Um, right. Well, that kind of kind of um, lit the fuse for me in a sense for what became the newer book. Right. Right. Yeah, it certainly is. You know, refreshing that you know breaking the stereotype of you know the Middle Ages is just a time of like Middle Earth. <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody doing battle with one another and right. you know feudal kings. Dukes fighting it out. Yeah. Bring out your dead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So tell us a little bit about the process of writing the book itself. Did you, um, you know, what was some of your research? um, Any surprises in in doing so? Um, Yes. I, um, I didn't when it's funny because we were, my agent and I were shopping the book idea around for a few years and Mm -hmm. I was actually starting to, you know, worry that, okay, this is never going to happen. And then we got uh, the offer from Prometheus books, but they wanted the book kind of in a hurry. (laughs) So, oh boy, um, I had to kind of literally block out my time. Like I'm going to need to take, you know, three to four months just reading and then, you know, you know, put my butt in the seat and just write, you know, and get it to get it done in time. Uh, And so um, I reached out to a couple of people, one particular historian of science in Europe, whom I've been friends with for 15 years. And Mm -hmm. uh, he specializes in uh, not the Middle Ages, but sort of um, uh, mathematics and the Renaissance. But he was really plugged in. And I just said, look, um, uh, I'm going to need some help on this. Uh, Can you help me you know, come up with a, a bibliography. Here's what I need to read. Here's here's my um, table of contents. And uh, so basically, um, I hired him to help me uh, again because of time constraints. And it was great because he would send me books to read. I'd run out to the library uh, and and just pile them up at home, do the reading. Then I would set like give myself a certain number of weeks to write a chapter. I'd send him the chapter and also to two or three other um, historians that uh, I've known either from since school or I've met since and they all critiqued them quickly and send back comments. So it was kind of like a, um, uh, an assembly line, like I'll write a chapter while they're reading the previous yeah, one and then just kind of, you know, put the whole thing together to get it done in time. And then of course COVID happened and everything stalled out. And I realized afterwards, you know, you probably could have taken a lot longer to do this than you, than you thought, but you know, that's life as you know, as a journalist. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, Right. It's, it's a lot of, you know, wait and wait and then hurry up and finish and wait. Yeah. And like all of a sudden, wow. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's never, um, uh, I, I had a, uh, a woman on recently, a psychologist talking about, you know, the, the virtues of patience these days. And in one of her definitions, I forget who where she got it from, but, but it was like patience is, is being able to um, deal with th- things that, that don't happen in the order that you expect. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that's very true of writing and publishing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's, so why don't we, uh, let's talk about some of the, uh, the chapters, um, uh, well, let's let's start with the, your your title inventions. You know, the clock and the camshaft. I guess uh, um, now I happen to know what the camshaft is because when I was when I was uh, you know uh, I guess maybe about ten, my parents who were very interested in educational toys uh, got my brother and me. Um, you know the uh, the visible there was the, the one thing called the visible man, and then there was another thing called you know the visible you know machine, and it was an engine. And so you had to put together an engine. So I learned, oh, this is what a camshaft is. <laughs> but if it weren't for that, I'd have no idea. So why don't you talk about how the camshaft was invented? And, 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 how- well, and it's funny you should say that because if you Google a camshaft, usually the first image that pops up is an internal combustion engine, right? With the intake valve, <laughs> stuff right? Like right. Yeah. Um, so um, the camshaft was probably invented. Um, uh, well, I should say its use. Um, the way we understand was probably in the early centuries of the common area, uh, mm. common era, um, both in China uh, and in the Roman Empire. Um, okay. I think initially scholars thought that it was invented in China and then kind of moved west. Uh, but more recently, they've discovered um, evidence that in, in Roman Spain, in ruins and stuff, that they were using mills uh, with trip hammers to um, pound ore, uh, to pound ore, um, probably for the making of weapons for their armies. Uh, right around the same time that the Chinese were using camshafts in their mills to haul rice, basically mm. to, um, you know, for food purposes. So, um, but the invention basically, um, what was unique about it was it was a way to uh, turn rotational energy into linear. So uh, mills had been around already for several centuries, both vertical water mills and horizontal water mills. Again, all across the Middle East, all across the Roman Empire, and, and in various uh, sizes. I mean, uh, small villages could kind of whip together a horizontal water mill high up in a mountain, you know, with a relatively strong stream to grind grain and so forth. Um, and then with bigger water sources, you know, the Romans could build huge vertical water mills and, uh, and use them. Um, but the camshaft came along, I think, at a time when I think they realized, wow, we can go in a lot more directions than just grinding grain for food. Mm-hmm. If you throw in a camshaft with cams, literally these little fins, um, now you can do all sorts of things that are, uh, well, like for example, the Chinese were hauling rice, but then he realized, well, we could also drive the forge bellows um, for um, the blacksmiths. Um, you could uh, um, basically um, power a bunch of trip hammers out of sequence for fulling cloth or for pounding ore. Uh, and then if you add um, a crank instead of a camshaft, you can actually power sawmills. Um, and again, there's evidence of this uh, from the Roman Empire, uh, stone saws, uh, which is really kind of remarkable. Uh, again, in the cur- kind of early centuries of the common era. Um, so once that, that camshaft you know, came into being, it was rapidly employed for all sorts of um, aspects of the economy, you know, mm-hmm. food, clothing, building, um, um, wood, uh, and, um, and, you know, um, 
purposes of um, anything they could think up uh, using water power. Um, right. Windmills came later. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is something that was invented. Um, some of the earliest windmills showed up in Persia. They were kind of ingeniously dug out of canyons, uh, and they could only work um, uh, from one direction. In other words, you'd kind of design this thing to face the north. So when the wind blew from the north, it would go through these kind of self-dug uh, canyons with uh, windmills inside them. Right. Uh, and they think independently, the Europeans uh, invented windmills um, in the northern uh, part, you know, Finland, um, North Europe. And they, what they uh, ingeniously figured out was a way to uh, build, put the windmills on turrets so that you could just adjust it to whatever direction the wind was coming from. Hmm. Um, so there were post mills, which were kind of simple ones that were almost like built uh, on uh, like a tree trunk, something really thick. Right. Uh, and then they started to build towers like castles, mm-hmm. um, uh, stone towers, and put the windmills up on top of those. Uh, those were kind of the later Middle Ages. Um, and uh, But... Uh, they were kind of, uh, they were ingenious in the sense that they realized, look, we, we don't want to just use these when the wind's coming from the north. We want to be able to adjust quickly. Right. Uh, and, it, and these things, in some cases, would be powered by, um, you, you know, you'd have some poor guy outside on a horse, and he'd have to kind of pull the turret around uh, to wow. change directions. <laughs> um, wow. But that uh, that was a European invention, probably like yeah. the tw- uh, 11th and 12th centuries. Wow, wow. Well, that's a really interesting evolution of, and, and it, as, as you point out, I think in, for a number of your inventions, it's really a confluence. It's not just one, even uh, as, as it was done by people whose names we might not have known, but it wasn't just from one direction. It was from different cultures and, and different influences. And, uh, you know, that, that's a great story. So, John, we're going to take actually a quick break. Um, uh, when we come back, we'll be talking much more with you. Um, author and producer John Farrell will get onto the clock and other inventions. So, folks, don't go anywhere. Lots more to talk about with John Farrell. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. We live in a fully connected world and share digital information every day in our businesses, with our money, and even our health. I should know. My name is Tyler Cohen Wood, and I'm a top cybersecurity expert and former U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency senior intelligence officer. I know many technology secrets that keep our world safe, but I have a secret few people know. I suffer from a rare autoimmune disease that has no conventional cure. According to the National Institutes of Health, as many as 25 million Americans suffer from a rare undiagnosed condition. People with rare or hard to diagnose diseases often spend years being shuffled from doctor to doctor and specialist to specialist, feeling as if they're in an endless loop of siloed care that rarely gives answers to unexplained conditions. In 2018, I became one of these people. At the time, I had no idea that I would use my cybersecurity background to save my own life or that I was about to go through a tumultuous medical journey that would change the course of my life and in turn, give me the opportunity to bring together my cybersecurity knowledge and my patient experience to change the business of digital health. On My Connected Life, Digital Health Disrupted, you'll hear how to better understand and improve your patient experience and keep your connected life safe. 
We'll talk about the latest digital trends that can keep the security of the entire healthcare ecosystem and our data secure and within our control. The business of digital health is our business and it's time we learn to own it. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Rowell or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.rowell at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with John W. Farrell, the author of The Clock and the Camshaft. Now, before we continue, I wanted to let you know you can find out much more about John's work, including his articles, posts, and reviews, short fiction, and so forth at his website, farrellmedia.com. That's F-A-R-R-E-L-L media.com. So, John, before the break, we were talking about the many um, influences that led to the camshaft. And, and I know that the camshaft itself led to was a component of uh, the other you know, title invention that you mentioned, the clock. Um, so talk about how that how that contributed to the clock and, and what uh, what that story was about. Sure. Um, so um, the clock, I think what's fascinating about the clock is that um, it was one was we don't really know who invented it. Um, mm-hmm. The scholars assume it was probably um, a group of blacksmiths working with a group of millwrights, um, probably at the instigation of a bishop. Uh, and it wasn't really to invent necessarily a timekeeping device. What the, what it looks like they wanted to do was um, automate the ringing of church bells, uh, either in a church or in a monastery. Um, and up until that point, you know, you had um, water clocks, which weren't that reliable. You know, you'd fill a basin with water, put a hole in it, and let the water kind of run out slowly at a certain amount of time. And as the water dropped, it kind of, you know, went by the markers inside the bowl. Uh, right. and, then, and somebody had to stay up and keep refilling it. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, you had candles that could also be used as timekeeping devices. Uh, but again, not really that reliable, um, and especially if it got drafty in the castles of northern Europe. So um, to automate church bells, um, they came up with a device. um, uh, And what's fascinating is that it's sort of the reverse of what we've just been talking about, you know, water wheels and camshafts to, you know, to power various things. Uh, In the case of the clock, what they wanted to do was figure out, is there a way we could use gravity to power something? You know, we've been using water, we've been using wind. Is there a way to harness the force of gravity to power a machine? And um, 
the, the problem there though was that while the power everybody knows gravity you know we've all fallen we know um what gravity feels like but what they had to do was figure out a way to um exploit it but inhibit it just enough so that it could be used uh to tell time well to basically to tell time to the point where okay the bells are going to go off at midnight so the mm. monks can get up and do their prayers and then the bells are going to go off again five hours later at dawn so the monks can get up and do their prayers so what's ingenious about it is the device they use um it's called a virgin foliate was basically um a way to uh, interrupt uh, the axle from just basically spinning out of control and the weights plummeting mm-hmm. to the floor. So you create um, uh, an, a device to inhibit it. And basically what it was was a camshaft in reverse. So they built, um, it, if you look at it, and you can Google this, and there's an illustration in my book, it almost looks like a weird coat hanger mm-hmm. uh, which with adjustable weights on either side. Um, and then a shaft, um, basically a kind of a camshaft, except it's it's vertical, not horizontal. And there are only two cams on it, one at the top and one at the bottom. And they're sort of in reverse direction so that the one at the top uh, bottom stops it again. And they kind of go back and forth. You know, this is where TikTok, TikTok comes from. It's this mm-hmm. little, this kind of, you know, carefully designed um, inhibition mechanism hmm. so that um, the weights can keep pulling the axle around, but very, very slowly. Uh, and what kind of uh, fascinates me is um, the amount of trial and error that must have gone into this, but it also the, the kind of intuitive genius to realize that there was such a thing as inertia. I mean, we think of Newton, you know, the laws of inertia and, um, you know, physical dynamics and stuff, but these people figured it out without any kind of mathematics, without any theory, without any principles of dynamics as we would understand them. They just worked, they just knew what they knew from working with their hands and, you know, creating mills and creating all these things and, and came together and said, we're going to come up with this device and see if it works. And then how often do we have to repair it? You know, can we adjust the weights and figure out what seems to work the best? And uh, this was, they figured this was probably at the end of the 1200s. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, probably to build a device for church. Uh, but then once it succeeded, it it took off, I mean, all across Europe. I mean, it, it became a kind of a competition thing. Well, our church has to have a bigger clock than them, so let's build ours. And then, uh-huh. you know, uh, within a century, I think, you had the King of France establishing uh, a, a standard of time for the whole country, which wow. was yeah, exactly. Fascinating. And uh, and as you know, we've all become slaves to the clock ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, you know, I think that uh, I think the stories that you uh, tell behind these inventions are, are really interesting because I think that, you know, we we usually think about inventions, at least uh, I do, you know, in terms of you know, more conventional, you know, Thomas Edison in, in his lab, you know, yes. people doing, you know, experiments. And these are basically experiments in real life. The people had problems to solve. And, and they just, as you said, there was the, instead of trial and error in, in, in a laboratory, it was trial and error in daily life because they had, they had to do something, fix something, make something work better, you know? So I think that's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, no, I'd like to imagine that, um, they were sitting around, you know, after a long day's work, maybe with the beer at the fireplace saying, <laughs> okay, uh, the weights were too heavy this time. It didn't work. Let's try this again tomorrow. <laughs> you know? right, right, uh, right. And how often the blacksmith had to go back and make smaller weights or, you know, that's right. That's um, right. Yeah. That's right. This is a three, a three beer weight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, for, for, you know, journalists like me, uh, of course, people talk about the history of uh, journalism. It's always the, you know, the Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. But as you point out, um, a printing press without uh, accessible paper and cheap paper, you know, is uh, it's not worth much. <laughs> so talk about the about paper is the role really of paper in terms of promoting, you know, the, the printed word. Oh, yes. Yeah. Gutenberg's a fascinating story. Um, you, you can't help feeling terrible for the guy because, you know, he, he put all this work into inventing the printing press um, and, uh, and perfecting, you know, the, the right kinds of ink so that mm-hmm. it can produce. I think his first he produced about a thousand copies of the Bible mm-hmm. and he had been loaned the money uh, by a wealthy lawyer. Um, and then after selling not many copies <laughs> uh, he basically went bankrupt and the lawyer you know basically took all the equipment away from him uh-huh. uh, and he spent the rest of his life working in someone else's printing shop and i think in sort of dying in obscurity um but around this time a little shortly later um um this, the the invention of paper of course was in china and this definitely moved westward uh, through I- islamic uh, kingdoms islamic civilization and in Italy, um, is basically in Italy that um, uh, the same thing, uh, mills, mills were now um, devised um, to um, make paper, make cheap paper, um, basically pounding all the, uh, the rags that they would use to kind of come up with uh, the material. And once that was done, once paper, this is an interesting thing is the initial drive for paper was for the emerging merchant class in Italy because they needed paper to write down, keep accounts. Mm. about everything they were selling, everything they were buying. Um, and then this very quickly got uh, adopted into bookmaking so that within, you know, again, a very uh, short amount of time, books could be produced much more cheaply and so that they wouldn't be just, you know, these expensive Bibles sold to like, you know, rich clerics, but now everyday people could buy their own Bibles uh, and pamphlets and, uh, and, and, uh, and this opened up the door towards to um, all sorts of, uh, possibilities. Um, the bad news for the Catholic Church, of course, was that in those days, when people once people started reading their own Bibles, they started questioning a lot of the things <laughs> that the church had been teaching them and said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't in the Bible. Where did this come from? And, uh, you know, that's that's one of the main instigators of the, of the, the Protestant uh, Reformation. Wow. Um, and uh, But also down the road, also the scientific revolution, because again, as literacy spread, you had more and more people wanting to go to the university and study science. Um, right. So, right. Yeah. Um, another thing that, um, um, you know, people sort of take for granted, you know, we go and we visit these uh, magnificent churches, but, uh, you know, it took some sp- uh, specific inventions, uh, like you mentioned, things like the, the flying buttresses, which you usually don't learn about until you take an art history class in college. But, um, you know, to, to talk a bit about uh, how yes. that came to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the rare cases where we kind of do we can attach a name, not so much to the invention of the flying buttress, but to the inspiration that kind of drove all the inventions that were kind of put together to build the cathedrals. And that was uh, Abbot Sugier. Um, um, uh, he was a Belgian ab- abbot um, who was um, kind of working in reaction to what was the kind of leftover, you know, Roman style of architecture you know churches were basilicas you know kind of in the shapes of crosses they were huge right. or they were you know they were sturdy but 
um, the way they were built, the windows were very small. And even on nice days, you know, going to church was kind of a gloomy experience. So they'd have to light lots of candles and so forth. And the abbot wanted to figure out there's got to be a way to get more light into our churches so that they're more uplifting. Uh, and this was right around the same time, too, where glassmakers were inventing, you know, stained glass and, you know, hmm. using colors to make a, a glass. So the um, the architects were like, okay, we want to build these uh, so that we can have bigger windows. That means thinner walls. Well, how are we going to, you know, we've we got thinner walls. That's dangerous. So then they came up with the flying buttresses, the outside sort of buttresses. Well, these will hold up the walls and we can make the walls as high as we want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in some cases, you know, well over 100 feet. Um, and then we can put in these huge windows and, and really kind of cheer up the interior of the churches. Um, and as they were doing it, they, they, they also kind of came up with um, um, uh, the pointed arches, just the doorways, which, again, could kind of um, bear more weight than the older style uh, rounded arches of the Roman style. Uh, and then rib vaults, um, which were an invention to kind of, again, hold more weight on the roofs. Uh, so basically, you had the cathedrals um, going a lot higher with a lot bigger windows. And, um, and to this day, people, you know, they're a huge tourist attraction, uh, as right. you know, if you've been to Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they are magnificent. The, the, I must say, bringing the light like that, in, sort of in combination with these stained glass windows, you know, yeah, it, it, interesting going back to your premise of trying to solve a problem or trying to make something better, or, but in, in, you know, in real life, as opposed to, well, certainly hard, hard to build a cathedral in a, in a lab. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. yes. So that's, that's interesting. And it's so, funny when you, when you think about now, like um, um, how long, it, how, how long, you know, we kind of gripe about, you know, it's going to take five or 10 years to build a new highway overpass. And right. the, these cathedrals often outlived the people who started to build them. In fact, you know, it would take sometimes two to three generations uh, to see them through to completion. And and I still marvel at the idea that they actually got done, that somewhere halfway through the second generation said, ah, screw this, let's do something else. <laughs> you know, they actually right. finished them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um Many of your things, uh, your, your your inventions are, you know, actual products and so forth. But one of the things I found interesting, too, was, you know, you talk about um, not just specific devices, but what I, I guess I refer to sort of as social inventions, um, you know, yes. like uh, universities and labor guilds um, being the outgrowth of, of the legal revolution. So let's talk about that a little bit. I, I'm fascinated by that. Yes. So that was um, um, in the uh, 1100s. Uh, the popes um, were getting worried about uh, their autonomy, the encroachment of um, European kings, monarchs, mm-hmm. uh, the dukes, and to protect themselves, um, I think it was Pope uh, Gregory the Seventh. He basically basically initiated what they call a papal legal revolution. He uh, basically um, it was Gratian, I think, one of the um, the monks who basically synthesized all of the law texts that they had available to them. Available to them. So, what was left over from the Roman Empire, the old Roman law, um, what they knew from the Bible, you know, the law codes from um, uh, the Bible, and then the laws from um, the local European kingdoms, you know, the Germanic kingdoms, and synthesized all of these into a kind of a new com- comprehensive. Uh, law so that the church could kind of protect its own autonomy. Uh, the big thing the popes were worried about was they didn't want kings appointing bishops. The pope wanted that right reserved to himself. 
mm-hmm. uh, and, and to protect, again, um, all of the priests and the churches from being seized or taken over by the governments. Once they did that, um, um, again, kind of other people realized, hey, we can also use this law to protect ourselves. So like the blacksmiths or um, uh, the weavers realized, hey, we can create mm-hmm. a guild, a little, literally we're gonna incorporate ourselves, we'll have a charter uh, and this is who we are and we can kind of like stand up for our rights. Uh, mm-hmm. And this also kind of uh, came to um, uh, be really important for the universities, the cathedral schools, as they got bigger and bigger, as more and mm-hmm. more students came in, uh, they created their own charters and, you know, the University of Paris, uh, the University right. of Bologna and Oxford. And again, they became kind of independent entities for the first time. Uh, and even though, uh, again, the bishops tried to exercise as much control over what they taught, uh, which is something I can get into a little later, um, they never le- nevertheless felt that they were independent from um, uh, the religious authorities and, wa- again, wanted to kind of govern themselves. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, that, again, in telling your stories, uh, how many of these things are really the confluence of uh, different influences, you know, political and religious, you know, kind of in concert and sometimes in opposition. Yes. Um, Yeah. And, um, you know, so, Don, we're going to take another quick break. uh, But when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that and also about, you know, the confluences of different civilizations that contribute to some of these inventions. So, um, so folks, um, we're, we're going to come back after a quick break with John Farrell. Don't go anywhere. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Rowell or his guest on the program, 
please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. Once again, I'm talking with John Farrell, author of the book, The Clock and the Camshaft. By the way, if you're looking looking him up, don't forget it's John W. Farrell because there are other Farrells who have different middle initials. And so our, our John Farrell is John W. Farrell. But anyway, so John, before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, um, various confluences of, uh, of influence. And one of them I wanted to elaborate on is, is just how, you know, Islamic civilization at, during this period uh, contributed to the cultural advances in the West. You know, and, and so you, you mentioned, you know, for example, preserving the ancient Greek texts, which we don't think of, the, of that something that uh, Islamic culture did. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, you know, um, thinking that, oh, yeah, Aristotle, Plato, a lot of that stuff, we just kind of inherited in a direct line, you know, through the Roman Empire. Right. Uh, and not realizing that, well, there was kind of an interesting detour that they didn't teach us about when I was a kid. <laughs> right. Uh, and that said, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, especially in the West, there was, there were, you know, the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, um, kind of didn't have as catastrophic a decline as the West did. Um, but basically, everything was lost in terms of intellectual, uh, most of Aristotle, almost all of Aristotle, a lot of Plato, a lot of medicine, a lot of philosophy disappeared. And then um, in the 11th and 12th centuries, um, as um, right around the time of the Crusades, which is of course kind of ironic, um, you had um, monks going to Spain basically because they had heard that um, the Arabs had uh, more reliable astronomical charts and these would be necessary if they were gonna improve their uh, means of predicting way in advance, you know, what are the dates for Easter? What are the dates for, you know, all the kind of holy mm-hmm. days? So there was a kind of a religious motivation there to get kind of better better, um, better data. Uh, and once they got to Toledo, and this is again, during the process of what they called the reconquest, uh, the Spanish kings were slowly retaking the Iberian Peninsula away from uh, the, the Muslim rulers. And Toledo uh, turned out to be just uh, a wealth of, um, of texts, uh, not just the astronomical stuff they were looking for, uh, but once they arrived there, they realized, oh my God, they, they, all of Aristotle, all of, all of these texts that they thought had been lost after the fall of the Roman Empire were available in Arabic. <laughs> so right. it was like, oh, we need to translate this back into Latin. Um, and around the same time, something similar was happening in Sicily. Now in Sicily, uh, you actually had um, the original Greek texts of, uh, of Aristotle and Plato and so forth. Um, but, um, uh, and they very soon sent people there to translate those uh, back into Latin as well. So basically over the course of 100, 150 years, um, right around the time when the cathedral schools were evolving into the universities, you had a sudden huge influx into these schools of translations of Aristotle, of Plato, of Arabic medicine, uh, Arabic philosophy, uh, Jewish philosophy, and it just had a huge impact um, to the point where some of the bishops of Paris were becoming alarmed about, you know, uh, well, what is in these books and it seems to, you know, contradict Christian doctrine. And there were fights, you know, during the course of Thomas Aquinas's life, for example, there were fights about what could and could not be taught. And as I mentioned before, the universities kind of stood their ground. They kind of hemmed and hawed and 
you know, complained about it, but uh, they never banned Aristotle, which is what some of the bishops wanted uh, because of some of his um, pagan philosophies. And that's just a fascinating um, era because you had this all going on at the same time we were trying to retake Jerusalem, you know, basically right. the Crusades were going on. So right. it was a war, but at the same time, you had these fantastic cultural uh, transformations happening right. uh, at a very friendlier level. Yeah. 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 During the break, uh, we, I was talking to you a bit about um, um, a book that I read a little while ago called Ornament of the World, which was an interesting. It's sort of the, the time period it covers is a little bit before yours, but basically the Middle Ages. And it, it's it's really the story of um, of how, um, you know, uh, uh, Christian, Islamic and Jewish um, um populations lived in peace for several hundred years in southern spain you know and i guess and under the under the the rule of of uh, uh, an islamic ruler who had to flee northern africa because he was involved in 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 battle for con battles for control of you know wh who was going to establish the caliphate and he he lost so he had to he had to flee for his life but but when he settled in northern spain he created this uh, culture of a tolerance essentially in which a lot of what you're talking about happened you know and and it was the islamic culture that that he basically um used as a framework you know to keep the peace but also tolerate you know many different um cultures and religions and influences so again i think these are things we kind of don't think about we you know we kind of um uh, you know, sectorize, you know, inventions and cultures and a lot of things are just a fascinating um, integration of lots of, of influences. Yeah. And, um, and, and ways of thinking too. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before um, um, we, we only have a, you know, a shorter last segment, but I wanted to you know, give you some time John, to just talk about some of your other work. I mean, so you, we mentioned your earlier book on uh, the day without yesterday. Um, uh, you're, uh, you, you're, uh, you've done other work. You've done some fiction. You've done, uh, you know, uh, reviews. Um, talk a bit about, about the relationship between the fiction and uh, nonfiction. I know that one of the things you mentioned earlier is absolutely true. When you when you do pieces of fiction and you try to get an agent, they're like, ah, oh, fiction. <laughs> I can't I can't <laughs> sell fiction. And then they they gravitate back to your nonfiction until they realize you're a really good writer. And then they, they said, well, maybe show me some of your fiction. Let's see what, what happens now, you know, but anyway, so just tell me about the relationship of different, you know, genres of your work. Um, I've published um, a handful of short stories over say the last, um, I hate to say it, the last 20 years <laughs> uh -huh. in different, um, in different magazines, some of which no longer exist as and this is another thing you'll be able to understand as a journalist is how quickly some, you know, exciting new magazines come and go. <laughs> um, right. But um, yes, I started out initially as a fiction writer and then moved into nonfiction because, you know, that's where the opportunities were. And, right. uh, but, but, and also um, I've been interested in film. Um, another thing I did was like, you know, writing scripts. Um, one of the um, um, interesting things that uh, opportunities that came up was um I got to write a script um, for the late British actor, Christopher Lee. Hmm. Uh, and it was sort of based on um, his autobiography, his service during World War II, and blended with um, the history of, of my wife's family. Um, my hmm. wife's family is from Slovenia. 
And um, something in his biography kind of inspired um, uh, this idea for a film script. So I wrote the film script for him, uh, which he really liked, and he never got around a chance to um, producing it. Uh, so a few years ago, um, I got together with some actors and pulled a little bit of funding together and made the film myself, and it's, it's up on Amazon uh, now. Mm-hmm. And uh, but again, it's, it's not history of science, but it is history and, uh, and fascinating history about what happened uh, in Europe after the end of World War Two. A lot of um, the, these kind of dark stories. And, and it was interesting because my wife's parents would often talk about these massacres that took place in Slovenia at the very end of the war. And, hmm. and I remember thinking, I've never heard of these. So it, it, is this just something they're talking about? And and then when Christopher Lee's, when I read his autobiography, he made a reference to them. And I thought, oh, there's something fascinating here. So that was basically um, like a, a, a one hour feature, uh, which was really interesting. And we combined footage from Slovenia, which I shot there and we shot it over here. Um, right. Uh, using uh, professional stage actors uh, with British accents, <laughs> mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, but um, so that was that was uh, a different a different thing to do. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and it's called a fine pavement, right? A That's fine the, pavement. Yes. Right, yeah. Right. And people can see it up on on Amazon. You said Amazon. Prime? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Yeah, Amazon yeah. Prime. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, they're interesting. You know, uh, one of the things that you know I. I I've done just a little bit of work in film, mostly in graduate school, but I think it's an instructive experience. You know, I think you really, certainly when you, you're writing books, you, um, um, you know, the importance of sort of the structure of the book, does it really work? And, and with film, it really teaches you that lesson. Yes. <laughs> if the oh, structure absolutely. doesn't work, you can, <laughs> it, the film, you can't watch it. It doesn't make sense. Yes. Know? So, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Pe- pe- readers will have a lot more tolerance for, tangents when you're writing nonfiction that they will absolutely not tolerate when you're trying to tell a story. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so before we close though, I'd like to then also just talk a little bit about just perspective going forward, you know, looking at some context. Um, what do you think are some of the, um, you know, the, the more important inventions in, in more contemporaneous times? Um, Physically, uh, well, of course, uh, speaking of camshafts, um, and uh, we just take them so much for granted, but I think mm-hmm. you know, the internal combustion engine, the automobile, right. uh, has been transformative uh, both for good and for bad. Uh, uh, the bad part is, you know, what it's done to the environment. You know, right. uh, sometimes you know, you, when you look at the earth at night sometime and see these patterns of traffic and realize, oh, my God, it's just like millions and millions. It's like, what is yeah. it doing to the uh, the surface of the planet? But on the other hand, a car, what a car can do for a small family, you know, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, the freedom it can still give you in terms of being able to travel to places to work and, and to make something of your life. It's still hard to kind of, um, uh, I mean, I think it's still something that has to be appreciated. I think in America, it's, it's probably less so. But I think in places, you know, like China and India, where, you know, and in South America, where economies are still kind of like lifting themselves up. Mm-hmm. Um, automobiles are, are a huge factor. And, uh, it, and again, it's, it's kind of a strange uh, thing where you feel like on the one hand, you know, they rely on fossil fuel and, you know, we, we're going to use it all up eventually. We have to figure out another means of doing it. But at the same time, we've created something that, you know, is a extremely useful, uh, fruitful product for, um, for poor people, for people who, you know, need to travel great distances to work and so forth. Right. Um, 
you had some of that too in the Middle Ages when they were deforesting the hell out of Europe and didn't realize right. it. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I guess another thing today too is a uh, medical technology, right? I mean, I think you know we kind of take it for granted now. Like, uh, well, I don't know, if we take it for granted, but but it's all around us, and certainly as we were developing COVID vaccines, you know, um, you know the the rapidity of of well, accumulated knowledge over the years to create these things. I, I think that's, it seems to me that's one of the areas where there's going to be a lot of innovation in, you know, medical and health and that sort of uh, combining, you know, sort of personal, you know, lifestyle and issues and, and health in general and just discovering things that we never really discovered about our biology. Right. Oh, yeah. And I think it's amazing. I know it, it's been hard, the pandemic, but when you think how quickly they came up with a vaccine, it's just, right. you know, it's, it's almost like World War II level ingenuity, like, let's just go do it and make it happen. Right, so. right. Yeah, one area which probably would need a whole other show to talk about, but but I, I was interested in your, your article about, you know, artificial, you know, intelligence. And, you know, you wrote a, a great piece. I think I think you can find it on your website, right? Is it on your yes. website? Yeah, it's on my website. It's a common will. Yeah, I yeah, it. yeah. So that's an area I think we we really just started to scratch the surface, and I'm not sure we, <laughs> as you as you put it, they understand the the promise versus the peril of it. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm kind of a science fiction geek, so I like to be optimistic about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there's. I mean, the the downside of it we're already seeing is is how automation is putting so many people out of work because you know companies figure they can save money by um, just coming up. I mean, not like robots, like smart mm-hmm. robots, the way we think of it, but they, they're smart enough to put, you know, a whole class of people out of work, which is, uh, which is not a good thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also raises a lot of issues that you mentioned, which is really understanding what, well, what these machines do versus what is true consciousness. I don't think we really understand what, what that is. And, and these things, you know, yeah, you can program them to do things, you know, but they're yes. still basically, you know, um, you know, humans putting in, you know, programming, you know, and structuring the, the kind of thinking. So they're not only thinking on their own, right. but, uh, you know, but that's, that will be the subject for a whole other conversation that hopefully we'll have with you some uh, sometime soon. That would be um, great. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, John, we, that's where we'll have to leave it today. Uh, but I want to thank you for a very informative, insightful, unusual conversation. Uh, if people have questions for you, how do they, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, I'm on Twitter and um, uh, on my website, I've got a contact page. Uh, okay. My email. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's like John W. Farrell at Gmail. It's the easiest uh, email you can <laughs> think right. of. Okay, good, good. Okay, folks. So if tell your friends if they missed my conversation with John today, you can still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Search for my show 45 Forward. Um, you can find it on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, robellresources.com and click on 45 Forward. So uh, be sure to join me next Monday. 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be talking with uh, Rhonda Schwartz from the Administration for Community Living, a federal agency that's leading the nation's observance of Older Americans Month, which is every May. And she'll be talking about this year's theme, Age My Way. So, folks, until then, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.